Isn't that a wonderful promise from the word of God? That the one who has saved us is the one who keeps us and holds on to us. He will hold us fast. He is the one who has begun the good work in us if we be in Christ. He began that work and he will continue that work until the day of Jesus Christ. Therein is our hope. It's not in ourselves, is it? I invite you to take your Bibles and turn, if you will, to 1 John chapter 2. And then will you join me in a word of prayer as we come today to God's word. Our Lord and our God, we come into your presence today. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank you that he is our advocate. We are thankful for his suffering, his death, by which your justice has been satisfied. And we are forgiven and pardoned, and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And it is our glad confession here today, as a church, that all of this comes to us by your free sovereign grace. There is no room for boasting in us. All of our boasting is in the Lord. And we rejoice today again in such amazing grace that you have poured out upon us. And we thank you, Lord, that your purpose will prevail. We are thankful that having begun that work, you will continue it. And That gives us hope, Lord, as we live in this world, and often we become discouraged. Often we can lose sight of that, and today would you use this day as a means of grace to point us again to our great refuge, our great advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom is all of our hope. We are thankful that he is an all-sufficient Savior to save us in every way that we need to be saved. And today it is our glad confession as well that today we need again to be rescued by you. We need to be rescued by your grace to save us from ourselves and to make us more like Christ, to help us on in following after Christ. And so I pray that even today as we've read the scriptures and as we have sung these hymns that, Lord, we've already been helped. And it's our prayer again as we come to the preaching of your word that you would be pleased also to come and speak to us. This is your word. All scripture has been given by inspiration of our God. And therefore, today, we want to hear from the mouth of our God. And so we ask for help and aid in doing that, for it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by your spirit that anything is accomplished, and you have promised that your word will not return unto you void, and so we pray that you would use it to that end today in our hearts, in our lives, in our church. And as as always, Lord, we come to you as a needy people We pray for those of our body who are going through some difficult times. We pray your sustaining grace to them, 
We pray you will uphold them, bless them, give help and grace for their daily needs. Some of these are unknown to others. Maybe others going through not physical problems, but other issues in their life that weigh their heart down. We ask that, again, we might today see Jesus as our great high priest, our advocate, the one who knows us, the one who loves us, the one who is sympathetic to us and our needs and has promised that he will give grace and help to us in the hour that we need it. And we pray that, again, that our hearts might go out to him today. It is our prayer as well that if there are any here that are outside of Christ, that you might, by your grace and by your mercy, draw them savingly to the only name that is given under heaven whereby we can be saved, and it is in the name of Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray and ask these things and for his glory. Amen. I'd like to read the first two verses of 1 John 2. We are making our way through this epistle of John written to believers up in Asia Minor. And he writes and says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. We'll focus our attention today on these verses, and we want to see today Jesus Christ is our faithful advocate. Jesus Christ is our faithful advocate. This week marks uh, 35 years since we had an attorney to intercede for us as we adopted a little boy uh, 35 years ago. This was the second time we had to use an attorney, and uh, he advocated on our behalf to bring about an adoption, and we are thankful for that. We've also had to use an attorney since then on this end of our life. Uh, to write out a will, Um, and uh, we did that not too long ago, so that whatever's left when my wife and I go, that it'll go to the kids. may not be much, but whatever's left. But we needed an attorney for that. We needed an advocate. And as we go through life, sometimes we do need that. But what we want to look at today is that as believers, we have a great advocate who goes to bat for us. Tanya often says, if you have somebody in the hospital or in a nursing home, you need an advocate for them to go to bat for them. And that's what we have in Jesus Christ. We have one who is our advocate, and he is a faithful advocate. He will not fail in his responsibility as our advocate. We want to consider that today. We just have two points today, and they're taken right from the text. The first is, my little children, I do not want you to sin. Second point, but if you do sin, we have an advocate. 
first point, we want to consider John as he picks up here in verse 1 and says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Now, this was not a convenient place to put a chapter division. Often uh, chapter divisions are helpful for us. They weren't a part of the original scriptures. They're helpful for us to help find our ways through the Bible. We can all get to the same place. But this is not a good place uh, where we have a chapter division because I believe that verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2 are following up on what John has been saying in verses 6 through um, verse 10. And so here he's following up and he's speaking to them in light of what he has been discussing in these previous chapters. He's been talking about the issue of sin and confessing sin. False teachers had come in, had an effect upon these readers, these these brothers and sisters that John is writing to. And uh, they had a distorted teaching about salvation, about sanctification, And some of them were believing that they had no issue with sin. And John addresses that. If we say that we have no sin, we're a liar. And again, in verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar. And his word is not in us. And so these false teachers had an effect upon these people. And and, and John is wanting to show them that... Yes, we do sin, and it will be a mark of a true believer that he is dealing with sin in his life. He is confessing sin. We looked at that last week, the wonderful verse, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And John is showing us what it looks like to be children who are walking in the light, And he's contrasting those who walk in darkness with those who walk in the light. And this is one of the tests by which we can know if we are Christian, that we are walking in the light. And a part of walking in the light is this, that we don't excuse sin. We don't make excuses for it. We are dealing with sin. We are confessing our sin. That's one of the marks of a believer. They're walking in the light, but not perfectly, but they are walking purposefully. One of the things that they are addressing is the issue of remaining sin that is within them. And this, again, is one of the marks of a Christian. They're dealing with sin, not covering up their sin, but they are dealing with their sin, not denying it, minimizing it, not excusing it, not blame shifting, but they are confessing their sin. And I think John has a concern here with regard to this truth that he has talked about because he is saying that sin is still a problem that we face as Christians. Even though we are saved, justified, we still do sin. And uh, we know that. Um, And we can never say, I have no sin we are never going to reach a state of perfection this side of glory. And so it is a reality that that we understand. Even on our best days, even on our best days, we still sin. And it may just be in thought or in motive, a word that we have spoken, 
but we sin. And John has said, you know, there is the guarantee that as we confess our sins, he's faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But I think John's concern is here, he says, he's wanting to say, you know, all this being true, I, I, I don't want you to sin because we could maybe go soft on sin. Well, it's inevitable. You know, John's telling us that we're going to sin, and it's a mark of a believer that they are confessing their sin, and I'll never be sinless this side of heaven. And so there's the possibility that we may take some of these things that John has been teaching and go in a wrong direction with it and come to wrong conclusions. So in contrast with these teachers that said, you know, it's possible to live without sin. No, we still do sin. We must confess it. But this should never lead us down the trail to be indifferent or to be apathetic about our sin or a lack of resolve to deal with sin in our lives. This is not a license to sin. And so on the one hand, John says, we do sin, and yes, we confess our sin, but on the other hand, John is saying, I do not want you to sin. Sin is something that is not to be normal with a Christian experience as a believer in living in sin. And so now John, as an aged man, writes, and notice the language he uses, my little children, my little children. You know, we belong to a family, and John writes a lot about that. As he thinks about his readers, he sees them as being his children, and probably many of them he had led to a saving knowledge of Christ, a knowledge of the gospel. And maybe many of these that he's writing to are actually his spiritual children, But it's also probably true, as he uses this word that he's speaking of them, that now he's older. He's the aged John, and they are much younger people, and they're much younger in the faith. But either way, or both ways, he's writing and and referring to them as his little children. And as I'm writing all these things, he says to them, I'm writing this to you, so that you may not sin. It's my desire for you, that is my prayer for you, that you would not sin, that you would not misunderstand what I'm saying. I do not want you to sin. And so, as he writes to them, don't misconstrue what I have said. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's possible for us as Christians, as many of us who have grown up in church. We've heard the gospel over and over again. We've heard about the free forgiveness that is in Christ. We know 1 John 1, 9 about confessing our sins. And I think there's a uh, possibility that we can take that for granted. Familiarity can breed contempt. And we really don't think as seriously about our sin, maybe as we should. We need to see, as we sang in that song, we need to abhor 
our sin for what it is, just sin against our Father who's in heaven. We need to abhor it. We need to esteem uh, the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to be those who are fighting against our sin. Paul says, fight the good fight of faith. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for your flesh in regards to its lust. Take hold of eternal life. Pursue after holiness. It's a very strong word. Pursue after it with all of your might and vigor. Be holy. And John would say to us, as well as his readers of the first century, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you do not sin. I don't want you to sin. And I hope that we would heed the word of John, that we are making every endeavor in our lives to be holy, to hide God's word in our heart that we might not sin against him. But John doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says, but if you do sin, if you do sin, He's realistic. He knows us and he knows himself. He, he's a seasoned saint. And we know the life of John as we read in the Gospels. We know that he had a, his, in his spiritual life, it was ups and downs as he followed Christ. There was often sinful anger in his heart. There was an occasion where he and his brother were jockeying for position in the kingdom. You know, we want to sit on the right hand or the left hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so John is honest. He knows about his own heart and he knows his own inclinations to sin. And I don't want you to sin, but, but if you do, he wants to point us to an advocate that we have. And notice he says we we have an advocate. John, the apostle, needs an advocate. I want you to know this, even if you sin, that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I appreciate John's honesty. He knows his own heart. He knows his own failings, his own temptations, and his own shortcomings, and he's able to say, you know, I'm sympathetic to you, and I know that we all need an advocate. And so he speaks here about an advocate. If we sin, now John uses a tense here when he speaks about sin. Um, he says, if anyone sins. Now he uses a different tense than what he's been using in chapter 1, where he has been talking about walking in the light or walking in the darkness or confessing our sins, those were all present tenses. Those are kind of the videos of our life. The video of our life is showing us whether we're walking in light or we're walking in darkness. The video of our life is showing us if we are ones who are confessing our sins. But the word that he uses here, the tense that he uses here, is a tense that is looking at, we might say, a snapshot. It's not looking at a habit and a course of walking in sin. But if we sin, a particular sin, and this tense is the aorist tense, and it relates to a point in time. And John is saying, if you sin, 
I'm not looking here again at the video. I'm looking at the snapshot. And would not it be true of all of us that as we look at our life, there are those snapshots in our life where, yes, we do sin. And this is what John is talking about. Again, he's not talking about a video that is revealing walking in darkness, but he's talking about uh, times in our life where we do sin, where we sin against God. It's not habitually that is being pictured here, but those times in our life where we do sin. And so John says, when this happens, I don't want it to happen, but when it does happen, he holds out hope for us here and encouragement as we think of our Lord Jesus Christ that he is our advocate. We're thankful that Jesus is our redeemer. He is our savior. He's a prophet. He's a priest. He's a king. He's our friend. But he's also our advocate. The role of Jesus Christ as our advocate. The word advocate is the word parakletos, and we've looked at this before in our small groups that we've been going through because it is used of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper, another comforter. And parakletos, the word is this idea of to be called alongside of. We think of a paramedic. Well, the Holy Spirit has been called alongside of us. He lives within us to be our helper, our encourager. And so it is used by John four times in his gospel to speak about the Holy Spirit and the one who intercedes for us, the one who is in us, who is our helper, our, our intercessor, our encourager, our advocate, we could say. But John wants us to know not only do we have the Holy Spirit who is in us, but we have the Lord Jesus Christ who is our advocate for us. And where does he advocate for us? but before the Father who is in heaven. Notice we have an advocate with the Father. We have an advocate with the Father in the court of heaven, we might say. And he is there for us. He is before the Father. The preposition that is used here to speak about before the Father is the same preposition that is used in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And this little preposition means toward, or we, would, we could even say this, face to face with. He's our advocate with the Father. Jesus in John 1.1 1, 1 is with the Father. He is face to face with the Father. Here John is telling us this Jesus is our advocate with the Father. He is face to face with the Father. He is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but he is also our Father. And it is there that Jesus Christ in the court of heaven is there and he is face to face with the Father on our behalf as our advocate for our good and for our blessing. And what a wonderful truth this is. It is before the Father. You talk about knowing somebody in high places. There is no one in a higher position to give help to us 
than what is presented here for us. The one to whom we belong, the Lord Jesus Christ, is our advocate, and he's in the very presence of God the Father on our behalf. And so here is John telling us of this great truth. If you do sin, I want you to know this, that you have an advocate before the Father. And he uses here a present tense. He is there continuously in the presence of the Father for you. In Hebrews, we are told that he ever lives to make intercession for us. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Well, who is he? Well, John tells us this advocate that we have is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Here is giving us much detail about who he is. He is this Jesus of Nazareth. He has our human nature. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He is Christ. He is the Messiah, the promised one. And all that the Old Testament spoke about him, he is this promised one who has come. He holds the messianic office. So he is Jesus of Nazareth, one who is like us. He is also the Christ, God's anointed, and he is righteous. He is righteous. So he's like us, but there's a way in which he is unlike us, and this is that he is righteous, perfectly righteous. He is holy. He is harmless. He is undefiled. He's separated from sinners in this respect. So this one that we have as our advocate, he is absolutely righteous. And what we find out in the gospel is that he's going to provide a righteousness for us that we do not have. And so here is the character of this one. It is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, made flesh. He is the Messiah, and he is absolutely righteous. So what does he do? How does he advocate for his people? How does the righteous one help us before the Father, relative especially to our sin? I don't want you to sin, but if you do sin... We have this advocate, and he is with the Father. Now, how does he advocate for us? Does he present our merits before the Father? I think we all know the answer to that, don't we? We have none. There's nothing that he could present of us that would make us to be accepted before him. He doesn't plead for leniency. He doesn't plead... Um, for extenuating circumstances in our case. He doesn't plea bargain. What we see, as John presents to us here, is the indisputable grounds for Jesus Christ's advocacy. Notice what he says there at the end of verse 1. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself, he himself is the propitiation for our sins. The whole case for acquittal, for forgiveness, for pardon, for acceptance is in the person of our advocate. He's not just our advocate, but he himself is the reason 
that we can be accepted before the court of heaven. He is the advocate himself which has made propitiation for our sins. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. So what is propitiation? I love this term that is used in the New Testament just a handful of times. Propitiation. It's a big word, but it has the idea of to make, to appease, um, to placate, and to make satisfaction for wrongs that have been done. And so it's to make an appeasement and to make satisfaction. And thus it's to remove the grounds of God's righteous indignation and displeasure because of our sin and bring us into a favorable relationship with him. You might think about someone if you run into somebody in the parking lot with your car. They may be a little upset with you, but hopefully you've got an insurance form and you can let them know what your insurance is and hopefully you can appease them and they can get their car fixed and you can make satisfaction for the wrong that you have done. And so here, when we think about propitiation, it presupposes the wrath and the displeasure of God. Sin evokes God's anger and God's displeasure. In Adam, the Bible says that we, are, we have come under the wrath of God. We have fallen in Adam and, and we sin. And we are under the wrath of God as fallen in Adam. Ephesians 2, Paul says there we are children of wrath. And so there is this idea that God's wrath presupposes this word propitiation. And when we think about God's wrath, when we think about God's anger, it's not like some people that we know, maybe a boss or a neighbor or someone in her family. It's not capricious. It's not uncontrolled and irrational fury. Robert Raymond gives this definition. He said, God's wrath is simply his instinctive, holy indignation and his settled opposition of his holiness to sin, which because he is righteous expresses itself in judicial punishment. Because he is holy, he must judge sin. And we expect that, don't we, of judicial, of judges, of people in this world. We expect them to carry out the law. Well, God is holy. He is one who must judge sin. He will by no means clear the guilty. So what hope is there for guilty sinners? Well, John wants us to know if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. He himself. John says we have an advocate, and he is the one who has made propitiation in himself for our sins. And so as we think about the wrath of God that is deserved, it is Jesus Christ who has himself stood in the place of guilty sinners and bore in himself the full weight and wrath of God in our place. Our substitute, the one who 
took the wrath of God for us. You might think of a dam. Think of a dam that is holding back a large body of water. And representing our sins, there are our sins. The sins of all of God's people are there in that reservoir. And at Calvary, the dam is broken. And all of those sins came and fell upon Jesus Christ. And he absorbed the wrath of God in our place. And God is satisfied to look on him and forgive me. And this is the idea of justification, what Christ has done for us. Now, in paganism, the pagans had this idea of appeasing their gods. But it was what they did to appease their gods. Turn over to chapter 4. And what we see here is that it is not us who are appeasing God. John uses this word again in verse 10. In this is love. 4.10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It is God who sends his son. It is God who sent him for this specific mission to bring about the propitiation for our sins. For us, John says. This is what Christ has done for his people, those who are united with him. He has made satisfaction. He has turned away the wrath of God. He's absorbed it in himself. There's none left for me. And therefore, we are forgiven. And this is the one who is our advocate. It is he himself that is there. As we sang in that hymn, five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive him, uh, he cries. Do not let that ransomed sinner die. There were two occasions that I was in a courtroom, and it was a, a murder case, people that I knew. And um, as I sat there and as I watched those things unfold. The guilt was obvious of the one who was on trial. And as I saw that, I thought, you know, this is a picture of me. I'm guilty before the court of heaven. And there's no hope left of myself. But there is one who has walked in between me and the judge. And he's an advocate. And he is the one who has made propitiation so that I could be forgiven and pardoned. And therein is hope. And what we see here is that as we think of these words that are used in the New Testament, that he's made a ransom, he's redeemed, that he is propitiated. Jesus actually accomplished this when he died. We're going to pick this up next week. This is a wonderful truth for us to understand that Jesus, when he died for us, didn't just make us savable or make propitiation a possibility. He actually accomplished that when he died. And we'll pick that up next week as we come back to look at these verses.
What a wonderful truth, though. John says, I don't want you to sin. But if you do, and when you do, know this. You have a wonderful advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ. May you go to him again and again and again. May you find assurance, hope, and confidence in, in him because he himself has offered up an eternal redemption through his work on the cross. One passage, just in closing, turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 8. And here Paul writes and he says these wonderful things. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Brothers and sisters, what a wonderful Savior, Redeemer that we have. Our great advocate, the right hand or at the, before the face of God for us, who has made propitiation. If you're here today without Christ, there is only one place in all of the universe where the wrath of God is turned away from guilty sinners and satisfaction has been made. It's in this one. It's in Jesus Christ. And how do we come to him? We come confessing our guilt, confessing our sins. And he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Read these words again from the hymn that we sang. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written in his hands. Father, today, how we thank you for these things that John has written for us. How he pleads with us that we would not sin. May we take sin seriously. May we abhor our sin. But when we do sin, may we take encouragement that we have such an advocate as this. Jesus Christ, the righteous, whoever lives to intercede for us. Thank you that he has absorbed in himself the sins of God's people so that we might be forgiven and received and welcomed by you. We thank you for that. If anyone is here without Christ, may this be a day of salvation. May they look to Christ and live in him. May they run to Jesus Christ, calling upon him, the only name given under heaven whereby we can be saved. And now to him who has redeemed us unto God by his blood.
people from out of every nation, tribe, and tongue, and people and nation. And he's made us to be kings and priests to our God. To him be glory and honor and dominion and blessing. And all of God's people said, amen. May the Lord bless you. You are dismissed.